Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As the United States approaches the 4th of July holiday, about 604,000 Americans have died during the pandemic as life begins to return to normal across the country. Still, public health leaders worry about the even more virulent Delta strain of the virus as efforts to vaccinate the entire nation stall. The new strain could prove devastating to the 35 percent of Americans who've not even gotten one shot. More worrying, the Centers for Disease Control say that about 10% of those vaccinated with one shot have skipped the second, reducing the efficacy of that inoculation. Boeing's chief lobbyist, Tim Keating, one of the most formidable and influential power brokers in Washington, abruptly left the giant fueling speculation about what happened. The Biden administration is talking about a new industrial strategy as reports surface that the F-35 Lightning II fighter is leading the race to replace Switzerland's aging F-18 and F-5 jets. Joining us to discuss the week on world markets, as they do every week, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch from our New Jersey Bureau, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and still amazingly fresh after two days at Legoland, Richard Ablafi of the Teal Group Consultancy joining us from sunny Copenhagen. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us again. Great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be a weekend without this. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Greetings from a strangely sunny and beautiful, lovely day in Denmark, Vago. I can't imagine a bad day uh, in Denmark for, for what it's worth for all of our uh, Danish fans, as well as you and the family in what the happiest place in the world, or did they lose that to Finland? I can't remember. Anyway, or Tivoli Garden certainly is the happiest place in the world. Uh, guys, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy and General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Ron, as you do each week, start us off on where uh, the market was uh, this week and what drove the performance of the group and individual stocks. Yeah, so if you if you look at the overall the overall group, um, the S and P on the week was up about uh, just under three percent, call it you know two point seven five percent. Boeing uh, was a was a champ up. Uh, about 200 basis points more than that, uh, around four and a half percent. A lot of that has to do with expectations around the upcoming United uh, Airlines Investor Day, which is on Tuesday, where it's expected we'll hear for a large order of narrow bodies for both Boeing and Airbus. So um, as it does, the market's you know, anticipating that. Now, the defense stocks were up as well, a um, little bit behind the market, but they were up. Uh, Northrop Grumman's a good bellwether. It was up just under 2%. Now, the big champion of the week was actually uh, Virgin Galactic. Uh, Virgin Galactic uh, was up a heady 52% uh, on the week, uh, with most of that on Thursday, Friday, largely Friday, um, because they got um, certification from the FAA to carry passengers, as well as uh, they said that after their last flight, all the checks of the spacecraft were where they should be in terms of inspections for wear and tear and, and so forth. Other factors on the week, uh, consumer Price index came out uh, late in the week, uh, and it was um, higher than than most people most people thought. We're pushing up now around five percent. Uh, last time we saw five percent year over year growth 
was back in 2008. Uh, if we kind of go north of that, then we're heading back into kind of numbers that we did, haven't seen since, uh, quite honestly, since the 70s. Uh, and then uh, interest rates as um, have been bouncing around kind of in the same range, but they were up on the week, just a, a hair under 1.6% uh, on the uh, uh, 10-year. So um, that, that, that's where we are. And then I would, I would note that uh, now that we're moving into the 4th of July weekend, I would imagine uh, volume in the markets and, and volume with investor calls, that kind of thing will start to uh, peter out as we move into the, how should I say, the dog days of summer. I should also point out, right, Sir Richard Branson uh, may actually uh, get into space before uh, Jeff Bezos, right? Jeff Bezos uh, supposed to uh, do a flight on the Blue Origin uh, rocket on July 20. And there was some speculation, or at least uh, Sir Richard has suggested that he will go up on July 4, uh, because, you know, he had always said that he and his family would be the first uh, to travel uh, on and, the new and, rocket. And, so. and, and I might add the Virgin Galactic team is a little cagey right now about uh, the timing of the next flight. So, um, you know, just feeding that speculation, I think they want to make it a surprise. What, Sir Richard? An impresario? Come on. I can't, uh, I can't, I can't believe it. It's, it's not, it's not in his DNA. Ron, uh, just, just before we uh, move on, because I want to get um, Sasha's take here. Can you, can you give us a sense on how the market is received? You know, so the stocks were up, even though it looks like the 2023 budget, defense budget is going to be a little bit smaller and there's going to be more pressure on it, right? I mean, the administration has been talking about uh, leveling, but it looks like the numbers that are uh, coming out suggest that it's going to be a smaller budget and it will be tougher uh, choices. Um, how's, how's the market accepting and reconciling that? Honestly, it really hasn't come up much in investor conversations right now. Uh, I don't know if it's widely recognized by the market uh, or even if it is, if you look at where the budget will come out, Ultimately, it's far better than uh, what and it was anticipated uh, kind of before this whole budget process, if that makes sense. Um, after the election, there was um, an anticipation in the market that the defense budget could be down you, you know, large double digit numbers with the current administration. Um, and clearly that's that's not playing out. And like we've discussed before, that's in no small part due to the administration's um, call it more muscular coordinated stance with on China, uh, right? As we've said, you can't be hawkish on China and be dovish in defense. It just doesn't dovetail. Sash, you've said over and over and over again on this podcast that unless the virus is beaten everywhere, travel uh, travel is going to suffer. Obviously, United States uh, doing well, uh, China doing well, but the Delta variant uh, spread in the UK delayed the much anticipated June 21 uh, reopening. Uh, and it's now sw- spreading quickly in about 85 other uh, countries. Australia had a handful of cases and they shut down again. Uh, rich countries have pledged about a billion vaccine doses. I'm not very good at math, but that suggests about half a billion people vaccinated. Uh, and the global population is closer to 8 billion. H- how is this working out? What are you, what are you seeing? What does it mean uh, and, you know, if 35% of Americans really get hammered very badly, that could have an impact on the United States, couldn't it? Ultimately, how, how does this shake out? Are we over this and, and charging ahead to the full kind of normalcy that Richard and all of us are seeing? I'm speaking from a, you know, very much a sort of little Englander perspective here, but we've had this astonishing situation this week where the UK is the best vaccinated large country in Europe by, you know, Quite a lot. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, you know, sixty percent, roughly, of the UK population's had two vaccinations now. Um, single vaccination is up at um, I think seventies or thereabouts, high seventies. Um, 
And yet, because the Delta variant is spreading in the UK among the residual unvaccinated population, there's now a travel ban with the rest of Europe. The EU, uh, and led by Germany, has just said the UK is effectively on the red list. Um, and what? And that's because they don't want our, uh, you know, UK unvaccinated people who might carry the Delta variant to go into their countries which have not been vaccinated. So basically, the problem with the whole vaccination thing is, um, you know, air corridors open up at the speed of the least vaccinated nation, not the most vaccinated nation, uh, which is incredibly frustrating uh, all, all round. But you know, from from a European perspective. And if you're in Europe, you're, you're, you're okay-ish. But if you're outside Europe, they're incredibly reluctant to open. Uh, and so I'm talking about you know, political continental Europe, incredibly reluctant to open doors to anybody else, uh, just on the basis that um, anybody bringing the Delta variant in runs the risk that um, you know, it accelerates the uh, whichever wave they're in now, third wave, fourth wave, or, or, or so forth. Now, the good news is that if you have a high level of vaccination, the Delta variant doesn't affect you very much as a population because it, vaccination greatly reduces the uh, likelihood of hospitalization and therefore reduces all of the complications associated with that. So the UK has got a rise in uh, the Delta variant and very, very little increase in hospitalizations. So it's totally different to uh, the, you know, the previous two waves, but that is not the case for, for any country with a lower level of vaccinations at the moment. And I think we're going to get these sort of on-off, on-off uh, scenarios this uh, pr pretty much the whole of the summer. And then it's going to be interesting to see what happens when we go into the winter. But basically, countries that ain't vaccinated are, are now, the, are really are the problem. And highly developed countries with a great deal of air interconnectivity are the problem because they're just shutting everything down at the moment. Um, and so although, you know, if you look at the broader air travel stats, there's a sort of seasonal upturn going on uh, in the States, probably in China as well. We're not seeing the, um, the wider opening up that I think we all hoped for four, six, eight weeks ago. Richard, um, you, you've been the most bullish of us three about uh, the prospects of a full uh, reopening. Um, how do you see this uh, development, right? I mean, we were, my wife and I recently were in Detroit um, and, and there was either some irritation with the Canadians for not opening their border or understanding that the Canadians wouldn't open their border, which was an interesting sort of spread. How do, how do you see the growth of a more virulent strain of the virus affecting so many countries around the world and what that does for the overall outlook? From the standpoint of uh, an American tourist in Europe where things seem to be reopening, on the one hand, eager to, you know, Reemphasize that I think late 2022 is when we get back to peak. On the other hand, I'm mindful that this might just be a bifurcated outcome. It's pretty clear that the Chinese vaccines in particular simply aren't quite fully up to the task. And I, while I have very little doubt that Britain and, and most and, and, and Europe and anyone who's got access to in the coming months, the, uh, the mainstream mRNA or AstraZeneca or whatever vaccines are going to be totally fine by the end of the year, if not before, I am mindful that it looks a little uncertain with the countries that have gone uh, Sinopharm or Sinovac, and there's already talk of maybe they'll need a second, a third, whatever booster uh, because of the Delta variant and whatever else. It you know, simply looks like a recipe for a complete mess. So I I'm wondering 
you know, if there really is this level of vaccine nationalism that persists and the Chinese simply insist that their outcome is the best and uh, the only one for their people and the people who've signed on to Sinovac and Sinopharm stay with it, then I can't help but wonder whether part of the world is going to be at risk of fairly, fairly soft travel numbers next year too. And, you know, on top of that, of course, you also have a lot of Asia that has solved the problem, not really solving it, but just getting it under control, not with vaccinations, but with, well, the usual, right. you know, social control methods and things like that. So hopefully they will get in line for the, uh, the Pfizer, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, whatever, were the, the, uh, the new one, Novavax, I believe, that also sounds very promising. But if a segment of the world sticks with the Chinese vaccines, that could be a problem for the recovery. Um, and, and obviously, uh, American carriers, uh, right, I mean, because we have such a vast domestic ecosystem, are, are racing to keep up an even American reducing something like six or seven percent of its flights for lack of uh, being able to bring back staff uh, quickly um, uh, enough. Ron, how do you uh, see this? Right. I mean, I went through the pandemic not knowing anybody, you know, any particularly close folks who've, who've passed away. I mean, friends of friends have passed away, but I'm surprised that even in the last couple of weeks, there are two I know who um, unfortunately lost uh, relatives because they had decided not to get vaccinated. Um, and, and so it just drives home that still hundreds of people are dying on a daily basis in the United States. And if I was a public health official, I'd get pretty scared. How do you, how do you see the situation going forward, both on supply as well as on, on demand and COVID ultimately, which is yeah. the crazy guy with the chainsaw in the room? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, my, my view here is really no different than it's been all along. Um, and to share, you know, Richard's um, phraseology, um, I'm a vaccine fundamentalist, right? In the end, um, that's that's what has to happen for everything to work out. Now, it seems for domestic markets so far so good, um, but you know, the Canadian border is still closed. Uh, and and to be you know, being quite frank, I'm uh, a little aside here, but relevant. Um, you know, I'm a member of a little ski club and we're thinking about skiing in British Columbia this winter, but we were not even thinking about planning that trip until uh, the border opens up, right? So, um, I mean, it, it really kind of suggests that, you know, the, so the domestic markets, if you will, will, you know, keep bubbling along, um, but uh, the international piece will be more difficult to get sorted out. And then you've got other countries, right? There's, you know, you know, you have the Philippines or Malaysia where there might be some cultural sensitivity around the, the vaccination where are, those are you know, areas where you do have a lot of flow through the international system. So until, I mean, I, th I think Sasha is dead, dead on correct, right? Until uh, you, you get the kind of everybody at a similar level from uh, a vaccination point of view, it slows down the whole system. Um, let me um, go to uh, Boeing. We had a very fulsome conversation about the company last week, just days after we had that uh, conversation. Uh, Tim Keating, uh, who um, was certainly one of the most influential uh, members of the lobbying community, uh, abruptly left the company. Uh, obviously, a whole bunch of questions about why uh, he left as abruptly as he did. Um, that tends to suggest something worse uh, than a person just finding a job somewhere else and leaving. I don't want to fuel any uh, speculation. It's interesting that all the channels have been dark on that. But a series of, you know, Mark Allen is picking up that job, highly capable uh, e executive. Um, 
The question, though, that a lot of people are asking is how does Boeing compete going forward? Because in the wake of that uh, conversation, I've had a number of com uh, discussions with folks about the fact that the company does not have the management depth and increasingly doesn't have the engineering depth. And then the question becomes, if the company suffers another problem, what does that mean? Richard, let's, let's start with you. What does Tim Keating's departure mean? Yeah, it's, um, it's a shallow bench and it's getting shallower. I mean, that's the, uh, the upshot. Um, Keating's departure was uh, unnerving, to say the least, because, of course, he not only was a very powerful person at Boeing, but one of the most powerful people in Washington. He routinely made that list of, uh, you know, top power players in D.C. And to not provide any kind of explanation, uh, I, I think, was a bit of a chill. Um, and, you know, everyone likes Mark Allen. Everyone thinks, ah, there's a, there's a successful performer, but he's doing a lot of jobs right now, which I think emphasizes the shallowness of that depth. And don't forget, last year, they cut the R&D budget by 27%. And that's a fairly labor-intensive, closely linked to the talent pool sort of budget. So <laughs> what does that tell you? When you say, you know, what happens when there's the next challenge? They're in the middle of that. You know, Tim Clark at Emirates says that the 777X program is a complete mess. Well, what does that mean if they need help right now getting that thing righted? Uh, it implies that they that part of the problem is inadequate technical resources. I mean, at this point, I think there are loud alarms and klaxons and a complete absence of leadership saying, this is what we need to do, this is what we should do, this is what we must do. And uh, it's showing up in all kinds of ways. Uh, you know, I, I can't name a single program that is not having problems that we discussed last week. Of course, you can add T7 and MH139 to the list, bizarrely, you know, the sort of prized new programs. So this is all a very troubling series of developments. Sash, how do you perceive where where we are right now? And and how does the Keating episode play into the into the narrative from from your perspective? Well look, I don't have the uh, detailed knowledge of the bench at Boeing that either Richard or Ron have. So I defer to them on that. But what I would say is that for the next generation of aircraft uh, that, that are going to have to be built at some stage in the next, and you know, select one, two, three, four, five, 10, 15 years, but some, you know, certainly by the, by the middle of the next decade, there's got, got to be a completely new generation of aircraft out there uh, just to deal with um, industry's attempts to get to uh, net zero by 2050. Uh, and even then, frankly, it's, it's probably too late. So, this industry has got to completely revamp its product range over that time. Um, and it is unlikely that Boeing in its current financial state can afford to do that. Therefore, it's going to need help. It's going to need assistance and almost certainly from the US government. And, and our view is that that was the uh, understory, the, the backstory behind the WTO uh, agreement uh, the other week. Um, and if that's the case, and you know that's fine, I personally think civil aerospace is a government business. The idea that it should be done by the private sector, I think, is um, simply false. But if that's the case, to get the, uh, you know, to get the whole of the US behind Boeing, uh, so the government, NASA, uh, the states, and Congress, you need the best lobbyists in the business. And therefore, the loss of somebody like Keating is uh, just an incredibly badly timed uh, loss of somebody who certainly by your accounts was very, very good. Ron, 
your your sense on on where all this puts us and how it contributes to the fragility of the situation going forward, especially if there's more bad news. Well, if you look in a very, very short time frame, um, Greg Smith, CFO, and also an operating an operating CFO, right? Um, he is he leaves in July. Um, Keating's exit. Um, that's two very senior people. Um, we don't see every day who underneath them may or may not have left. So when you when you see exits of um, senior staff, senior executives, um, it it makes you scratch your head. Uh, you, you have to you have to wonder. Um, you know, it's a company like we have said before that has to deal with a lot of change. Um, is this part of the plan? Is it not? They haven't really communicated that. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies um, at first, obviously. Um, so we'll, we'll see where it goes. But you know, my, my worry becomes, you know, what is happening in the ranks be- below these individuals? Are they losing talent uh, to other, you know, other companies or you know, other endeavors? Do you guys think, um, you know, Sash, uh, playing off of your industrial strategy, industrial policy question, um, you know, Brian Dreese, uh, the White House, uh, the National Economic Council uh, director, uh, discussed the importance of having uh, a national uh, econ- uh, industrial strategy. You know, he repeatedly, you know, he said, you know, time and again, uh, industrial strategy allowed America to become an economic superpower. And, and this time he says we have to do it with allies and partners uh, that uh, there were, as he put it, uh, quote, uh, unique economic vulnerabilities, end quote, that were exposed by the pandemic, whether it was for medical supplies or computer chips or anything else. I endorse the approach because I think those who say, that, you know, that the government can't make industrial policy just isn't paying attention. The government's making industrial policy every single day, both good and bad, right? Both investing in the future and maybe spending too much uh, money on, on, on the past. Is Boeing going to have to get bailed out here at at some point by Congress look, or the White House? Well, look, I mean, short answer, yes. But uh, industrial policy on my side of the Atlantic is not as dirty a phrase as it uh, might be taken uh, on your side of the Atlantic. But I just point to you, in, in the industry that we are talking about, Industrial policy saved Rolls-Royce in the, in the early 1970s and enabled, gave it the time, space, and capital to uh, develop, to, be, to go back to being one of the world's top three aero engine companies again. Industrial policy in Europe created Airbus. And you look at uh, Asia, industrial policy is creating a Chinese civil aerospace industry. So if you don't have an industrial policy that accepts that this is what everybody else has, is doing, will do, and that you need to do with a company that is a systemically important industrial company that is, you know, to an external observer, clearly failing at the moment, you'll lose it. And it'll, you know, you'll um, lose all the goodness associate, associated with having a world-leading uh, civil aerospace company. I agree completely, except for uh, change, uh, no, not, never, to yes, now, and always. Uh, so many things to disagree with. I'm sorry, Seth. First of all, I don't think Boeing needs bailing out. They need a completely different approach to management. But in terms of cash and even the resources needed to develop a new plane, I mean, you know, 
it, it really doesn't move the needle in their overall picture. And the amounts being talked about in the halls of the government in terms of what's needed for commercial aero technology development is kind of laughable in the scale of things. And I'd also, if I may, just a couple of other things. No, uh, Airbus wasn't created by European industrial policy fiat. All of Airbus was around World War I, World War II. They merely got together and bashed their heads together, but all of the technological and industrial resources and facilities were there. They were merely doing their best to say, hey, if you do not get your act together and combine resources, then you're going to fall to Boeing, McDonnell, Douglas, and Lockheed, which had you know 90% of the market. You'd better do something. And then finally, I would argue that industrial policy is kind of ruining China's aerospace industry. There's no reason they can't be as good, if not better, than Japan. Instead, they're flailing around trying to replicate the wheel. And the best outcome we can expect is a Soviet outcome where they meet indigenous requirements and exactly zero else with a complete crap line of products. So I, I don't buy the argument, frankly, that industrial policy is going to play a big role here, nor do I buy the argument that it ever really did. And the point about Rolls-Royce, well, you know, that, that's a fair point, but you know, protection is very different than the kind of let's create something new and build a whole line of new products that really, I think, uh, some people dream about. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think. Can, can, I, think can, I, can I just have, have yes, one, <laughs> one follow up there? You can have a rejoinder Russia, before we go to Ron. Yeah, Russia. Russia has only ever been in a good year, 5% of the global aviation market. China is 30%. So if the very best case is that the Chinese have an indigenous product that dominates the Chinese market, our companies have just lost nearly one third of their entire market. That is, you know, that's what Chinese industrial policy is aiming to do. Import substitution in the world's largest nation is a nightmare scenario for our companies. My take. Uh, I, I, I agree. And, and I think uh, I, in, from my sense, having covered Airbus only for about 30 years, uh, not as long as you two, uh, but at, at the, it, 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 there was a lot of national industrial strategy and a lot of it was driven by France. Um, and, and you have to give credit where credit is due. And so even though they were companies and they did see handwriting on the wall and they did get their heads bashed all together, there were a bunch of very smart folks who were working uh, behind the scenes and making sure that from an, and in front of the scenes to make sure that Airbus became a success. You know, it, it took 30 years, but it eventually became a success. And it's because of, of government investment, education policy, right? I mean, a whole bunch of things that, that, uh, that played into that. And sometimes it succeeded despite uh, uh, state uh, involvement and screwing up, as we saw in the case of um, uh, uh, Noel Forgeard and, and, and that unpleasant circumstance that we had some years ago. Uh, Ron, what, what's your sense on this? Yeah, so just a, a couple of comments um, on the Airbus side. Let's first you know, industrial policies, all well and good. Had Airbus made lousy products, they wouldn't have succeeded. Um, so let's be clear about that. A380 didn't work out so well, but it, it's gone. A320 was a home run. Uh, you know, the early A300, A310 did okay. Uh, so they 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 came up with products that the market liked. A330 did great, right? I mean, so it it it's it's a combination of some industrial policy, but they actually put together products that the market wanted. 
either through a combination of performance and price or both, or you know, however you want to frame it, um, the market like the product. Uh, so, you know, counterpoint, if you look at the C919, it's an open question if the market's going to like it. Um, it's an industrial policy program. But if you just say, okay, hey, you know, for whatever reason, if the market likes a C919, then they'll sell C919s. Um, you know, just it's, it's that simple. Uh, when, when, you, when you look at the Boeing side, um, the way industrial policy, at least from my, you know, my limited vantage point has been in the U.S., is you know, NASA got money from the government to do fundamental work on technologies that were pre-commercial. Um, and they still do. So, um, you know, should the U.S. government be funding a new aircraft at Boeing? Absolutely, positively not. Um, should the U.S., in my humble opinion, should the U.S. government be funding basic research for new technologies that could work their way onto uh, a Boeing aircraft or into the supply chain or into the, you know, the business jet community or the broader aviation community? Yes, absolutely, positively. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's kind of where they are. You know, should the government be bailing out a company that has gotten itself into this situation through, you know, either you know, poor strategy, poor capital deployment, uh, you, you, you name it, you pick, pick the vector? No. I mean, just in, in, in my humble view. But is the U.S., is, is this situation such, looking at the company's commercial and business, uh, commercial and defense lines, is there a circumstance you see that could involve the United States government coming to the aid of the company? They're not there in yet. Some There's, there, the, the, I would argue that the Boeing company is not in a position today, as we know it, where everything that has happened today isn't reversible. Will they at some point? Sure. I, I, I can't tell you when or if that happens, but you know, could the company do a new airplane tomorrow if they wanted to financially? Sure, they could. Could they do an equity offering to clean up their balance sheet to, to do a new aircraft? Yeah, yeah, they could. Could they change their engineering ranks if they, if they need to, right? If our thesis about what's going on in engineering is right, could they do it? Sure, they could. They're not to the point of no return. Um, it, it, so I don't think they're there yet. I think they're still a ways away from that, but the writing is on the wall, right? If something doesn't change at some point, right. um, the future isn't great for them, but it's not to a point where it's not changeable yet. Look, I mean, also uh, not to belabor this because we've got a little bit of time left and I want to get to um, a, a couple of other big stories that I want everybody's take on at some point. Right, there are a lot of other attractive, sexy engineering companies to work for. Right, there is SpaceX, there is Blue Origin, there is Virgin Galactic, and the Virgin companies. And you know what I mean. So now it's a different. Well, here, uh, but here I mean, I mean, let me frame it this way, because uh, I was confronted with this. Uh, yeah, correct, because you were a way, PhD aerodynamicist way back when, Boeing. right? Right when I got out of school, you know, when I got my PhD, um, and I wanted to work on aircraft. Well, where could I do it? I mean, I, I could do it for Boeing. I could go to Wichita, Kansas and do it for one of the companies there where, where I almost did. So I could work in the business tech community. I could work for Boeing. Um, Lockheed. Yeah, yeah, I could, yeah, but even there, you know, if you're an aerodynamicist at a, you know, with all due respect to the aerodynamicists at defense companies, they, they play second fiddle to everybody else just because the nature of how they do what they do. Um, but today, if I was getting out of school, I could go work for SpaceX and that would be for a young person, probably pretty exciting. Or I could go work for a whole handful of startups today. And, you know, who knows if, you know, if the startup's going to make it or whatever. But it would be an exciting place to be as a young engineer putting your, your, your handprints on something that's all new. 
right? So there's a much broader um, landscape of attractive opportunities for, you know, innovative young engineers out there today than there was just 20 years ago. Sash, let me uh, uh, come to you on this for, for you to uh, start us off because there were a couple of big uh, British uh, stories, uh, right? HMS Defender got shot at by the Russians. Uh, you've got um, a deal in the works between two extraordinarily uh, innovative companies. I mean, just staggering in, in their uh, history, capacity, and creativeness, uh, Cobham and Ultra. Uh, but as usual, uh, as in these cases, there's a catch. Um, and then news reports that the F-35 uh, is leading in Switzerland. Obviously, um, that was a Reuters report. Obviously, the decision will be a political one, but apparently the F-35 came first in the technical uh, evaluation, which appears to be the case in some of these competitions, right? The Rafale is doing well in places where folks might go for an F-16, F-18, uh, or even a Gripen. Uh, whereas the F-35 is, I think it is in its own category for a whole variety of reasons, obviously good for British industry too, as uh, friends of mine in London point out. Quickly talk to us about each one of these stories and, and what you think they mean. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, HMS Defender, uh, which is one of the Royal Navy's Type 45 uh, air warfare destroyers, um, uh, went up into the Black Sea with part of part of the UK's carrier strike group, but not the carrier, interestingly, um, and uh, did a freedom of navigation uh, operation around the Crimea, which, um, you know, our listeners will remember, uh, is Ukrainian, but was seized by the Russians uh, about five years back, and the Russians took it extremely badly. Now, I think a lot of what we have seen this week associated with this has been stage managed by both sides. Um, uh, and there's been a lot of sort of uh, also very misleading stuff, including sort of spoofing of the AIS systems and so forth. So the Russians put out that they had fired, uh, you know, they had a gunboat firing the HMS uh, Defender, then that they were dropping sticks of bombs to, you know, to make it go away. Um, the, the view from HF, HMS Defender was arguably and reported by journalists to be rather more peaceful. Um, but, you know, this doesn't do either side any harm at all, does it? Uh, it? Makes the Royal Navy look as if it's going and doing things and, you know, protecting freedom and all that stuff. Makes the Russians look as if they're defending Mother Russia. Um, it, it, what's going to be interesting is what happens when the whole carrier strike group goes to the South China Seas, because the Chinese are probably rather more sensitive to this sort of thing, don't have such a long experience of how to play these games, um, and therefore there's probably more scope for miscalculation. Now that's you know, a couple of months off, but I think that's going to be the really interesting issue, and in particular, you know, which, if any, warships uh, transit the, the Taiwan Straits and how the Chinese take that. Um, Cobham and Ultra, uh, very, very interesting. Two UK mid-cap uh, companies. Cobham was taken private by private equity um, uh, a year and a half ago, uh, two years ago. Um, and they are now effectively the, um, uh, the private equity company, Advent, is using them as a vehicle uh, to make a bid for Ultra. These are both defense electronic subsystems companies, very, very innovative, very much Anglo-American businesses, the pair of them. They've got uh, you know, very strong foundations on each side. I think the interesting thing is going to be, um, I mean, first of all, it's not obvious that Ultra's done anything terribly wrong. It just happens to be sort of sitting there doing its job well, but quietly. And what is the benefit for Ultra shareholders of 
um, being bought out by a private equity group, albeit using Cobham as the as the vehicle for that. And then the second issue is going to be, does the UK government want to lose yet another publicly quoted company to private equity? Um, or you know, is Advent going to use this as a means of sort of effectively bringing Cobham back into the stock market by some sort of, uh, you know, reverse uh, takeover? It, so I think it's at a very early stage. There's a, a fairly new management team in at uh, Cobham, I guess they're not going to be that keen to uh, lose their jobs at the moment. Um, and I suspect this one is going to be played out over, uh, over over the coming months or so. I don't think this one is going to be uh, necessarily easy to do. Then finally, Swiss Fighter. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when there were press reports that Rafal was doing very well. Now, actually, this was broken by um, the Swiss broadcaster, um, uh, SRF, saying that F-35 has won the technical evaluation. Um, I think it's quite, it's very, very interesting that because um, the wording, the technical evaluation, it's important to remember that the, the Swiss have actually got four criteria for selecting the next fighter. Technical evaluation, which is the capability. And yeah, F-35 is an incredibly capable aircraft. Purchase price. F-35 pricing is coming down and it's going to be very interesting to see just how much they can bring that price down uh, below some fairly mature um, other products, both F-18 uh, Rafale and, and Eurofighter, but then operational costs, that's going to be interesting, and sovereignty and industrial participation, where F-35 um, Lockheed Martin offered to assemble four aircraft uh, in Switzerland, and that was uh, not taken terribly well. Um, the catch for the Swiss fighter program is that whatever is selected is subject to referendum. Uh, the opposition parties have said they will uh, call for and get a, a public referendum on the decision. Which I should, which I should note, right? The yeah. Gripen uh, had won this, and it got undone in part because Dassault and Eurofighter worked hard to get a national referendum to undo the Super Gripen decision. Ultimately, yeah, exactly. And um, same thing will happen to F thirty five. Uh, but probably with, you know, uh, with knobs on. Um, you know, it's very interesting that Boeing's marketing in Switzerland has repeatedly referred to the F-35 as a bomber, um, which, you know, it's a strike aircraft, clearly, but that sort of thing really winds a lot of Swiss voters up. So it may be that the Federal Council, which meets uh, this coming week, decides to select, on the basis of the other three criteria, um, the aircraft most likely to get through the referendum rather than the aircraft that is uh, necessarily best but doesn't stand a prayer. Uh, but I think the technical evaluation is only one step in this. Richard, your sense on uh, any any of that, if you want to discuss it, but also particularly about the F-35 uh, in uh, Switzerland and, and what it could mean for the future. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, they, of course, this time the Air Force did do a referendum or the government did before going into this. And of course they won by what, 50.1%. So if there is another one for whatever reason, clearly as Sash says, it's quite vulnerable. Um, I'm not so sure why one fighter would have an advantage over the other because, you know, I, maybe this is the reason that this trouble or, or comment was put out. You know, yes, there is this narrative that it's a coalition strike aircraft, a bomber, as Boeing says. But you know, the message seems to be that there's this emphasis on um, well, situational awareness and you know, its utility for air sovereignty. It's more than just a first day of the war coalition strike aircraft. So it, it, it could be that there really is sort of a preparing the ground for getting this across. 
or it could be that it's uh, it's quite vulnerable. Uh, certainly, the the history of the Swiss fighter requirement uh, implies nothing certain at this point. Ron, yeah, I, I would say this. I mean, I, I don't have a heck of a lot to add to what Richard and, and Sasha said. However, um, if it were to uh, you know, go to the F-35, that would be, I think, a, a pleasant surprise for uh, Lockheed Martin and those that are investors in it. And Ron, uh, before we go, because I know you mentioned this, and I'm sorry I didn't ask this question uh, sooner, um, U.S. government put policies out about labor in Xinjiang, uh, obviously because of uh, Beijing's crackdown on the Uyghur minority uh, in the country and the existence of concentration camps and, and what have you. Uh, what are the implications of this? Because it's not just cotton that comes out of Xinjiang. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, they released a, an info sheet on it, uh, and then they updated it um, Thursday night last week. And it's on the, the, it was released by the White House, uh, new U.S. government actions on forced labor. Uh, and, and what's fascinating about it is, you know, there's a, there's a list of companies and things, but on the entity list now is uh, uh, Hoshine Silicon Industry. Now, why that's actually important is if you kind of go through the supply chain, Hoshine um, is uh, about 60% of the world's supply of silicon. And it doesn't matter if there's an intermediary country using that silicon. So for example, if a US company were, or, or another company were to buy say silicon wafers from Japan, but those wafers, the source of the silicon in those wafers came from Hoshine, then those wafers would be under a withhold release order in the US. Um, now, what, what's that imply? I mean, that could imply a uh, meaningful slowdown on um, on everything that uses you know, silicon wafer, silicon technology, the you know, chips. Uh, and, and it also might imply that, you know, the U.S. has domestic silicon mining capability, um, if you look on the U.S. geological survey. So um, maybe that comes back. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a reasonably aggressive move on a relatively important market. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Always an honor and pleasure having you guys on. Hope you guys uh, have a great week and looking forward to talking again uh, next week. Uh, and Richard, happy sightseeing. Yeah, thanks, Vago. Always great to be here. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Great to be on, Vago. And I'll give your regards to the Tivoli Gardens. Uh, absolutely. And to the whole family, to everybody else as well. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.